You know, I wish John the Baptist could be here this morning instead of me. And I'd love to be in the congregation and ask him, uh, John, where did you get your camel's hair? Like, how'd you get that? Like, what'd you have to do? Did you have to trade? Did you have to kill the camel yourself? Like, how did you get your garment? Or, uh, John, what was it like to eat locusts? What did that taste like? And how did you find those buggers? Like, did you have to dig for them? Or how did they come to you? And how did you get all your wild honey without getting stung? I'd love to ask him questions like that. I'd also like to ask him, John, where did you sleep at night? The desert gets cold. Did you find a cave? I mean, how did this go for you? Were you with the Essene community? Or like, how did that go down? Like, how did you live in the desert for all those years? On a more serious level, I'd love to hear him talk about uh, his communion with God. Because before he was preaching in the desert, before the desert was his pulpit, it was first his chapel, where he went deep and profoundly deep with the Lord his God. I'd love to hear about that. I'd love for him to be here today, too, because there's something so effective about his message that I want to hear it and be changed and be, be led to new things in my own conversion. There is something so effective. It says in the gospel, people of the whole, the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. Real conversions were happening because of what he was saying. There was real change in people's lives. And sometimes I feel like all of us as preachers, we, could we preach like John the Baptist? Wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe it's had something to do with his location too. You know, you think about it. If, you're, if you have a message that you feel is really important, are you going to do it in a place where nobody is or are you going to do it in the place where everybody is? You'd probably do it in the place where everybody is. In other words, like Jonah and all these other Old Testament prophets, you walk through the city proclaiming your message. But not John the Baptist. He's out in the desert, and the people are coming to him. And he's still so effective. And maybe his location helps with his effectiveness. And maybe if we ponder that location, it can help open our hearts today, too, to God's word. You've probably had the experience of being in a place where there's just vast expanses. I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on uh, eastern Colorado and western Nebraska. If you've ever driven through there and it's desert, there's tumbleweeds and cows, right, and, and some fences. And you drive through it and you can see for miles as you come up on these hills and you go down in some of the valleys. Or maybe you've had the experience of downhill skiing and being on top of a mountain. Or simply being in an airplane and being able to see for miles. Or the boundary waters at night when you can see the stars. These experiences of the transcendent, of something bigger than us that makes us feel small, so it opens us to something in our hearts. Maybe that's what the desert experience was like. And that's why when the people were coming out, they were, already, they were already having this reaction to the location that opened them to effective preaching. And then when they heard really effective preaching, they actually had a reaction, an action, that they did a ritual event. They did a ritual thing. It was a new thing. There were ceremonial washings in Judaism, but not for the forgiveness of sins in one time, like John the Baptist was preaching. So effective, it caused them to be aware that they didn't have what it takes. So effective to be aware that they knew that they needed conversion, and then they did something about it. That's why I kind of wish he could be here so we could all hear that. The, the reaction to John the Baptist, and Baptist was repentance. And this word metanoia, conversion, a changing of mind, a literally a turning of the mind from one thing to another. And they realized they had real, real change in their lives. I want to need that in my own heart. Maybe you do too. So very aware of our need, my own need for conversion, my sin failures. 
The good news is God wants that for you too. That's what our second reading from Peter proclaims, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants our conversion. He's working for us more than we are, reaching out, sending us grace. Last week, the homily theme was three words, sinners on watch. We reflected on our identity as Christians. We don't say we're dirt and dust and worms. We say we're God's beloved children, but we're very, very much in need of a Savior. We're sinners. We're very much aware that we don't have what it takes. That's, that's who we are as Christians, sinners on watch. And the way that we keep watch, I shared the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that came out of the Christian tradition. And if we're not intentionally like working every single step, at least the principles are things that every Christian, all of us need to be working in order to be on watch for our Lord. Being aware that we need a savior, aware of our failings, ready for him to help us, uh, doing an examination of conscience, going to confession, making amends, repeating, and then going deeper in prayer. That's what we all are invited to a path. That's how we keep watch. I'd like to talk about one of those steps in particular today. One that I wish John the Baptist could be preaching about because it's a step that's really, really hard for us. It's step five. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Gosh, we really struggle with confession, don't we? It's hard for us to do that. It's hard for us to go to that sacrament, even though it's incredible, it's good news, it's still hard for us to go. It's hard for us to acknowledge our sins and failings and then go be baptized in in terms of going to confession. That's why I wish he was here, but I'll still give it a try. I'll still give preaching about those two that a try. And I think there are two images today from our readings that can help us maybe be more open to that sacrament. First is uh, exile. These are two images that are incredibly momentous events in the Old Testament. The first one, the exile, you remember, remember how the Israelites, the nation of Israel had their, their nation. They had King David, they had King Solomon, and they had a whole bunch of other kings. I think there were 17 of them. And they were worse. They kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then they experienced this being conquered by another country, kind of twofold, two waves of that. And then they were deported to Babylon, 587 BC. So they're in Babylon. They're deported. And that's where we have this first reading from Isaiah the prophet. It's a part of his preaching called the Book of Consolation, where as they're deported, he's preaching this promise, this good news. Listen to part of it again. Comfort. Give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak, pen- speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end, her guilt is expiated. Remember, Jerusalem lay in ruins. It was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So this message of you no longer have to be in ruins. There's going to be a restoration. And then there's this image of a runner, of a voice crying out in the desert because a runner running from Babylon back to Jerusalem saying, I'm paraphrasing now, it's going to happen. There's going to be restoration. Start building the road, fill in the valleys, level the, level the hills. We're coming back. That's the message. That's the hope. That happened in 537, kind of not as glorious as they were hoping for. And so this message of restoration from exile is a word that we call a word in waiting, a word that's waiting for its fulfillment completely. It doesn't happen in a political kind of sense, but it happens when Jesus finally comes on the scene. This is what he gets to do. He does spiritual road construction. 
And he brings us back to the Father's house. It's Jesus who is the one that leads us as exiles back into the, 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 the city, of the new Jerusalem. He's the one that restores us to glory. And it's in confession in particular that it removes any obstacles that we call sins and fills in any valleys that we call our insecurities, our wounds. He does that so that the grace of God can be poured into our hearts more profoundly. This is a return from exile. And he does this especially, especially, I think one of the things that keeps us from confession is shame. Shame that says you're dirty, you're defined by your sin, that thing you did, that's you. You're no good. Everybody's going to think less of you if they really knew what you were like. If they really knew that sin you committed, yeah, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be stoned. You'd be, you'd be ostracized. Nobody would even talk to you. You are a lout. Something like that. That's shame. And all that condemnatory words, that's all from the devil. That's not from God. God doesn't bring shame. Not shame on you. That's not how God parents. No. He says, I know that you've done something wrong. That's what guilt is. And guilt brings us to conversion. But shame, shame makes us want to hide, just like the garden in Adam and Eve. And what happens in confession, we experience our identity renewed again as beloved children that were not defined by our sins. The way that we say it, the devil knows our name, but he calls us by our sins. The father knows our sins, but he calls us by our name. It's a return from exile. It's a return from being in the wrong place back into the right place. That's what confession does for us. That's the first image. The second image, a new exodus. You remember how the story goes in, in salvation history? There's this family, Abraham, and then there's you know, Father Abraham, had many sons, many sons. Okay, and then there's Jacob, and he gets uh, sold into Joseph, and he gets sold into Egypt and slavery. And then there's a famine, and all of the God's chosen family ends up in Egypt, and they're oppressed for 400 years. There's a new Pharaoh that knows nothing of Joseph. And they have to be slaves and task you know. And then there's Moses comes on the scene and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And they bring, the people are brought out of Egypt. There's the plagues, remember all that? Ten plagues, one of them, by the way, was locusts. Hold that in your head for a second. And then they're led into the desert. And they come up in the desert for 40 years because they have to get all this, this secularity out of them so they can go into the promised land. And they come up to the Jordan River. And then they crossed into the promised land through the Jordan River. Some say that's where John was baptizing. And it's not by accident that he's eating locusts and wild honey, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Locusts, a sign of the plagues, what was in Egypt. He's this, this boundary, this man who helps us move from slavery to the promised land. And that's what confession does. It takes us out of slavery. It takes the sins away. It brings us into a new promised land. Remember also that Old Testament story of Naaman the Syrian, who his court retinue convinces him, there's a prophet in Israel, go talk to Elisha. So he goes to talk to Elisha. Elisha doesn't even open his door, and he just says to Naaman, hey, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman's like, what the heck? There are cleaner rivers where I came from. I don't need to wash in that river. But he does it anyway, and he was a leper, and his skin is healed through the Jordan River washing. You know, that was the word of a prophet. How much more the word of Jesus himself. He says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain are retained. And he gives this sacred power to his apostles. A power that's passed on to the priests. The same power that transforms bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is the power that's been given to a priest for a second action. 
forgiving sins. Only God can do that. It takes a superpower. And so there literally is a reconfiguration of the soul of the priest at his ordination so that he has that superpower so that when he says the words absolution and means them, a person's sins really are taken away. That's the gift. That's the, that's the power that God has given. That's how we go from uh, this, new, this new exodus out of slavery into freedom. You know, uh, I was struck this week as I was reading the catechism passages on confession. Uh, catechism passage 1470. It talks about how hard it is to go to confession. It is. And in a sense that when we go to confession, I'm going to paraphrase it a little, we put, ourse- we put ourselves on trial. We are our judge. We're judging ourselves and saying, I'm guilty. I've done that thing. But then the catechism goes on and it says, for it is now, I'm quoting, in this life that we are offered the choice between life and death. We're offered that choice to do that. And it is only by the road of conversion that we can enter the kingdom from which one is excluded by grave sin. In converting to Christ through penance and faith, the sinner passes from death to life and does not come to judgment. In other words, by voluntarily putting ourselves in judgment and saying, God, I've done this, I need your mercy. We experience like non-judgment at the end of our earthly life when all of us face Jesus the judge. By saying, doing the hard thing now, in other words, we don't have to face the hard thing later. I'm kind of making that more simple. But by saying, yes, I've done that thing and I need your mercy and receiving God's mercy, at, when we face the judgment of God, he doesn't, that's blotted out. It's wiped away, and, it, and we pass from death to life, and we, we're with the Lord. You know, I wish John the Baptist, again, I wish he was here so that he could preach about this, so that we could be even more convinced than what I'm saying. Something about him, maybe his radical passion and love for God that would radically turn our hearts to really have a conversion to this sacrament. I've preached about it before, and maybe it's helpful to reflect on the, the honey part of the sacrament of confession where it's free, anonymous, confidential, personal advice that I can't get. Where else do you get that? Nowhere. It's a, it's a sacrament that the grace literally transforms our personality with time, transforms our inner being, changes who we are, takes a weight off our shoulders, restores us to the Father, transforms us, humi- and, and the grace of humility. Yes, it's hard to say what we've done, but there's the growth in humility by being able to name it and claim it and offer it to God and ask him to remove that obstacle. And so we grow in the most essential virtue to holiness, to humility, by going to this sacrament. The honey, that it's also the place where our consciences are formed so that we know better right and wrong, especially in a complex world. The honey, that it's a divine initiative. God himself started it. Christ himself gave us this sacrament, and he didn't intend it to be kept up on the shelf and never used. No, that would be silly. That would be illogical, and Jesus isn't illogical. He gave it to us because he knew he would, we would need it, and he wants us to use it, this power to forgive sins. And I've also shared the honey, the sweet experience that as a priest, I hardly, hardly ever remember what a person is, has done. And I never, ever think less. I've heard 5, 000, about 5,000 confessions, and I've never thought less of the person. Sometimes I've weeped with them in their sorrow, but I've also heard the victory that God gives. I've heard God called them by their name, and I've seen him move them to a new promised land. And if I ever do remember, I can never, ever say anything about it. And I do prayer and penance for that person, uniting myself to the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints that are praying for them. This is what the priest sees. This is the honey. 
Maybe I've also, I've, I know I've also shared the vinegar, a little bit of a spice this morning, that it really is the case that our church teaches based on the solid teaching of St. Paul himself, that if we're aware of grave sin in our souls, we need to deal with that first in confession before we present ourselves for communion. This is the teaching of the scriptures in the church. And missing Mass on a Sunday for something other than sickness or uh, a car accident or something, that's a grave sin. And yet we lollygag up to communion like nothing's wrong. No, this is what our church teaches. And St. Paul himself saying, says, whoever eats and drinks the body and blood of Christ without discerning the body drinks condemnation upon himself. This is the vinegar. This is why we go to confession. This is why it used to be that every Saturday evening there were tons of people at confessions and parishes, not because they were all sitting mortally every week, but they had an understanding of sin. And I get it that some of that was a little bit unbalanced. We hear stories of kids making up sins because they didn't know what to say, and mom was making them go to confession. We don't want to go that way. We want to have a balanced approach to it, though, that it's rightful place as a sacrament that we all are comfortable going to. A little bit of vinegar, too, that if we die in a place of grave sin, unrepentant, we are excluded from heaven. That was a catechism passage, and it's mentioned at least three places in the New Testament. That's the vinegar. Maybe a little hellfire and brimstone to help scare us into the confessional. I don't know. I prefer to draw with honey. But this is what, this is what we're invited into this morning. This is the, the good news, the first words, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel, aeongelion, means good news, glad tidings. The one who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. I'm not saying this to shame anybody. I'm saying all this to draw us. That in maybe the intercession this week of John the Baptist, that we'd have that conviction that I want to do a ritual action to, to, for the forgiveness of my sins. That's why we've made confessions available outside, because I want nobody to feel like they can't come. My own life, confession, Save my life. Don't know where I'd be without it. And no, I wouldn't be a priest. It was a retreat. I remember one particular experience that changed my approach to confession. It was a retreat experience that was being held at St. Scholastica. I remember the, it was Storm's Den. I remember the priest that heard my confession. I remember going in back into adoration afterwards, reading Psalm 37 for my penance and just weeping, realizing that God wanted to restore me, and that he was blotting out my sins and he didn't see me as my sins. From that moment on, I've started going to confession every one to three weeks. And it's been the thing that has transformed me more than anything else. Adoration along with it, those two. And of course, the Eucharist, those two. But it's been something that's been transformed my life. And I know I wouldn't be nearly as virtuous as I am if it wasn't for God's grace in that sacrament. So concretely this week, two things. First, pray for John the Baptist's intercession, that he would really convict us in a way that's powerful, that we really have a love for this sacrament. The second thing, there's a song that we uh, used this week as we, it was, happened to be the week for uh, our sacramental prep for confirmation that we also looked at confession. There's a song that had come, uh, it's called Run to the Father by a musician named Matt Maurer. Run to the Father by Matt Maurer. If you do type in Run to the Father Matt, it'll be like the first thing that shows up on a search engine. But listen to that song, and uh, my soul needs a surgeon my heart needs a friend. I'm running to the Father. I fall into his arms. I'm kind of paraphrasing the lyrics. But maybe, maybe that song will help move you too, to, be, to, be, to really appreciate the, that my soul really needs a surgeon. And this is a place where I experience a new exodus, a return from exile. My last thought is this, is that so often in my prayer, my prayer is that I would not be any kind of obstacle to people availing themselves of this sacrament. 
So I pray, Lord, if there are things in my personality, if there are ways that I've said things or done things, let me see that and let me see it soon so that people have no fear of coming to confession. They don't have to drive to a different parish. And then my prayer is, Lord, if there's anything in me that's a permanent obstacle, move me on to a different parish so people can trust their priest, so they can really fall in love themselves with this sacrament, so that they can know the power of your love and your mercy. So I, I pray that. I pray that often, almost every day, that people would really, really love this sacrament of confession, this fifth step that's often so difficult. So that's the grace. We move from sinners on watch to sinners redeemed through the sacrament of confession. And the grace we pray for today is a deep and profound conversion and love for the sacrament of confession. Amen.